Hello fellow healthcare professionals, this is Mark, your remote medic, and I am cruising down the road, got a couple hour drive here to get home, and it is raining cats and dogs, so I'm sure you can hear that in the background, and I really hope that this audio is still somewhat feasible to listen to. Most of my podcasts will be done while driving down the road as I got a pretty busy house. Uh, but this will bar none be the one with probably the most background noise. So the way I want to run these podcasts to begin is uh, I'm going to bring a case study. And then I'm going to have, at the end of the case study, I'll have a take-home point. Uh, something that was really driven home to me uh, based on the case, based on the patient that I had just worked So the case study today is a 79-year-old female that I was called to transfer out of a health center. Um, Up here in Canada, we have these quasi-hospitals. They're staffed with family medicine doctors. Uh, Sometimes they have anesthesiologists as well. Um, But the family medicine doctors, they do have a small ER usually with three or four beds. And uh, the family medicine docs basically do what they can to stabilize patients and then try and organize the best transport uh, to get the patients to the city. And where I am, the city is anywhere from four, two and a half to four hours away. So I picked up a patient, a 79-year-old female out of one of these uh, health centers where a family medicine doctor had intubated her. She has a history of pulmonary fibrosis. She's on home oxygen at two liters. And she just had a hip replacement four days ago. And today she's been an inpatient in this health center. And today she developed significant shortness of breath. Uh, White blood cell count came up and uh, she had, x-ray was positive for uh, a pneumonia. So probably a ventilator acquired pneumonia from having this hip procedure four days ago. So nonetheless, uh, she became very hypoxic. She had an SpO2 of 82% on room air. Uh, She was combative, very confused, uh, you know, just very hypoxic, and they decided to intubate her. So... I loaded her into my ambulance and she presented as follows. Uh, she was diaphoretic. Her skin color was uh, off gray. She had very cool extremities. She had a warm core. Her blood pressure was 52 on 30, which gave her a map of about 40. She had a heart rate of 130. And she had a, she was febrile. Her temperature was about 38.5 or 38.9. Her end tidal CO2 at this time was 22 centimeters of H2O. So I immediately placed two large bore IVs. When I got her, she had a 20 gauge in the back of her hand. Uh, so I immediately placed two large bore IVs in her forearms and I started a crystalloid infusion. I was using uh, normal saline and I was pressure infusing two liters. And I glanced over at the end tidal CO2 and like I say, it was 22 and I thought, well, that's that's not too bad. Uh, It's a little low, but 
uh, probably what has happened is uh, they did this emergency intubation, which these family medicine doctors don't do very often. And the nurse that was running the bag probably just overventilated her, hyperventilated her, and you know blew off some of the CO2, causing her to have a low a low end tidal. So I started my ventilations at about 12 breaths per minute, and about four or five hundred cc's per breath. Uh, we don't have transport ventilators, so we're doing this with our hands. Uh, that's why I can say four or five hundred per breath. It depends on uh, how far my partner squeezed the bag with each given breath. So I started to fluid resuscitate her, and I got the two liters squeezed into her and uh, filled the tank up, so to speak. And I started a dopamine infusion just to try and get her cardiovascular system put back into shape as obviously we were we were giving her a differential diagnosis of sepsis. I did have the increased white blood cell count and the fact that she was hypotensive and tachycardic prior to intubation. So I started dopamine at 5 mics per kg, quickly ramped that up to 10 and then 15 after my 2 liters of, of uh, infused saline. I then took the pressure infusers off and hung two new bags of saline and just had them at a wide open rate. Um, it didn't take very long, maybe five minutes, maybe ten minutes, and her blood pressure started increasing uh, fairly significantly with the dopamine and the crystalloids infusing. And before long, my map was climbing up into the 60s. Uh, of course, we know we need a map of 65 to adequately perfuse our tissues. So we got our we got our map up into the 60s, and as that was happening, once it once it crept up over 60, my entitled CO2 started to come up, and uh, so it was creeping up 35, 45, 55, 65, and my map was going up at the same time. And finally, I got my map to reach 65, uh, right where we need it, and. I looked over at my entitled CO2 and it was up at 82. And I was kind of taken aback for a second. And uh, of course, confirmed tube placement and all of that stuff again. And I basically had my partner increase his rate. I increased his rate at that time to 22, uh, leaving, the, leaving the volumes low, leaving the volumes at a, uh, around 400 mils per breath. And we continued down the road like that for a little while. And eventually, her map of course stayed right around that 65. And eventually her end title started to creep back down again. And I was able to get it as low as 60. Still not great, uh, but for a pulmonary fibrosis patient with uh, a fairly significant pneumonia, probably as good as we were gonna get it. So we were, we ended up bagging her at 22 breaths per minute and um, got her admitted to the ICU. The trip in total took about four hours uh, on some icy, crappy roads. It would have been nice to go lights and sirens and cut that down, but the reality is we were doing about 70 kilometers per hour down the highway, slipping and sliding all over the place on the ice and snow. So sometimes that's just not a reality out here in the remote setting. So. 
I was reflecting on this call and this end title CO2 and of course I realize where my lapse in my thought process when it came to this end title CO2 lies. And so that's where I come to our take home point. Our take home point on this patient, on this case study, is when you have a hypotensive patient, a patient with a MAP less than 65, or whatever blood pressure you define as hypotensive, or whatever you like to use. I like to use MAP and I have a life pack and it calculates it for me. And So when you have a hypotensive patient and you're looking at their end tidal CO2, that end tidal CO2 is going to give you a representation of perfusion, not ventilation. When you have a patient who is normotensive, your end tidal CO2 is giving you a glimpse of ventilation. Okay, so let's, let's talk about that for just one second here. Let's take a carbon dioxide molecule in a patient who is normotensive. So a patient with a MAP 65 or greater. So an oxygen molecule is in a tissue, let's say a big toe. So the blood flows from the lung, where it's oxygen rich, flows through your arteries down to that big toe, and it does a gas exchange. The hemoglobin gets rid of its oxygen, picks up that carbon dioxide, trucks it up back to the right atria, into the right ventricle, out into the pulmonary circulation, goes to the capillary bed that wraps around our alveoli and exchanges that carbon dioxide for a new oxygen molecule. That carbon dioxide and all of its little friends gets disassociated through the alveoli into the bronchioli, through the bronchioles, up through the tracheal tree, and into the endotracheal tube where my life pack 15 sucks a little bit out of there and gives me a numerical value based on the concentration of CO2 that has been exchanged into the alveoli. So initially on this patient I had an entitled CO2 of 22 but the patient was hypotensive. So what was happening pathophysiologically in this patient was the tissues were producing carbon dioxide but because they were not perfused adequately, the gas exchange was not able to take place. The oxygen-rich blood in the capillary beds that surround the alveoli were not able to get to the tissues, were not able to get to that big toe or that pancreas or that brain or that whatever other tissue for that gas exchange to take place. And therefore, the carbon dioxide was not able to get bound to the hemoglobin and make its way up to the capillary beds that surround the alveoli and therefore the blood did not have a high pressure, a high partial pressure of carbon dioxide. And when I first saw that number of 22, I mistaken that for a patient who had been hyperventilated. Now of course we all took VQ mismatching and of course we understand how these things work. But you know, sometimes in the heat of the moment when you're resuscitating these patients, especially in the first five minutes, some of that stuff kind of escapes your, escapes your brain. And so I like to have these take-home points and, and apply these rules, if you will, in these moments of 
critical thinking. And so the rule that I have made for myself when I'm dealing with these patients is when I'm looking at my end tidal CO2, I'm only getting 50% of the information that I need. I need to look at my end tidal CO2 and my map. And if I have an, a map of less than 65, when I look at my end tidal CO2, I'm looking at perfusion. If I have a map of greater than 65, then I'm looking at ventilation. Now I'm not figuring into this things like pulmonary embolisms, patent foramenal valleys, things like that. This is talking about patients who are volume depleted or hypotensive for other reasons. This is entitled CO2 and MAP and how they correlate. So from now on, when I look at an entitled CO2 reading, I cannot interpret that entitled CO2 reading until I have a map to correlate with it or a blood pressure to correlate with that end tidal CO2. And I encourage you to do the same things, although I imagine that most of you already are. I encourage you to be the same way. When you look at an end tidal CO2, immediately look at map or blood pressure so that you know whether you're looking at perfusion or ventilation. That is the take home point of this first case study. I hope that this podcast was uh, somewhat easy to listen to or somewhat digestible. Uh, Being my first one, I'm sure there's lots of stalls and ums and things like that, but hopefully they'll get better with time, and uh, hopefully there's a person or two out there that even cares to listen to them.